We're near the back of Luke this morning. Luke chapter 23, from verse 44 down through the end of the chapter. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. The word of the Lord is completely without error. The word of the Lord is completely sufficient. And the word of the Lord is completely authoritative. Luke chapter 23, beginning on verse 44. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home, beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance, watching these things. Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man, who had not consented to their decision and action, and he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone, where no one had ever yet been laid. It was the day of preparation, and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath they rested according to the commandment. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Let's pray together. O Lord our God, Lord, we ask this morning that you would reach us with your word, that you would change us, that you would focus our lives and our hearts upon the Lord Jesus. This we ask, O Lord, in Christ's precious name. Amen. We have come now to what it appears to be the end. The end of Jesus' ministry with his death upon the cross. But the interesting thing about the scripture is, is that this really is the beginning. Jesus has completed the first phase of his work, and now the work of our Lord Jesus Christ through his spirit and through his church is about to begin. You see, we come to death and we think about an ending. But with the Lord Jesus Christ, his death and burial is the beginning of the changing of the world. The beginning of what will come even to our own hearts and our own ministry. 
And so this morning, I'd like us to see three things about Jesus' death here. First, we see that Jesus' death is effectual. That it matters. That it accomplishes things. And we're going to see those things be accomplished through mighty signs and wonders and the words of our Lord. Secondly, we see that Jesus' death was public. It was not something hidden away. It was something for everyone to see. And this makes a difference in the lives of people. Thirdly, we will see that Jesus' death changes everything. That it changes the scope of the world, what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, and what it means to follow Him in truth. Jesus' death is effectual, it is public, and it changes everything. Let's begin then by looking at Jesus' death as effectual. We see here in verse 44 that Luke tells us that it was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. Jesus' death is effectual, first and foremost, Because he bears the wrath of God. And we see that working out right here as Jesus is on the cross. Now, the tragedy of Jesus' death is about to conclude. We've been seeing it coming throughout the entirety of the gospel. Jesus had set his face toward Jerusalem. Jesus had had a struggle in the Garden of Gethsemane. We saw the horrible betrayal of our Lord Jesus Christ by Judas leading in a pack of soldiers. And then we saw the sorrowful mocking and beating of Jesus in what would not in any real sense pass by the name of a trial. We saw the injustice of what Jesus went through. And then just last week we saw Jesus placed upon a cross. We know what's coming next, don't we? And yet, we wonder. Jesus is about to die. But knowing that doesn't make it any easier to understand or to come to grips with, does it? Have you ever had the experience of rereading a book or watching for the second or third time a film in which a main character, a beloved character, has something very bad happen to them? You know it's going to happen, but it doesn't make it any easier to read. It doesn't make it any easier to watch, does it? Because you know it's happening, so you get tense. You can anticipate it. This is what the death of the Lord Jesus Christ is for Christians. We know what is coming. We know it must be. But we still don't know how to deal with it. And Luke tells us what Jesus' death is for. This helps us to understand and to come to grips with and to apply the death of Jesus to our life. Jesus' death is effectual first because he bears the wrath of God. And we see this out in the very heavens and creation. Luke tells us it was about the sixth hour. And there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. Now, We have to understand what's being said here. You may have had the experience of someone trying weakly to debunk the Bible by saying, well, look, 
It's 6 o'clock in the morning. It's dark lots of times at 6 o'clock in the morning. It was overcast yesterday when it rained. That's not what Luke is talking about. First and foremost, we have to understand that the Romans of their day did not own wristwatches. They didn't have clocks. And so they did what people have always done, which is they started counting time from when the sun came up, because that was pretty obvious. And so the sixth hour is actually noon. With the sun rising at about six, that's when they would reckon it. So from the sixth to the ninth hour is from noon until three. It is the brightest time of the day. It's the time of the day that you have a problem if you have misplaced your sunglasses in Katie. There's blinding light everywhere. And what Luke tells us is the light of the sun failed. It doesn't mean it became slightly overcast with clouds. That means it was dark as night. It was like getting up at three in the morning and trying to find your way. (coughs) Now again, some have tried vainly to poke holes in the story of Jesus' death by saying... Well, that's obviously just an eclipse. You know, you've seen those solar eclipses. Someone may come and may do that to you. Let me give you advice that works here and throughout the rest of the Bible. When someone comes thinking they're going to destroy your faith in the Scriptures, just do a little bit of study. Because you know that Jesus is crucified at the time of the Passover, right? Do you know how they figure the time of the Passover? It's related to a full moon. Did you know that a solar eclipse is absolutely physically impossible at a full moon? The moon is on the wrong side of the earth. So the next time someone comes to you and says it's an eclipse, don't question their Bible knowledge. Tell them to go read an astronomy book. You see, what's happening here is a supernatural event. There is no reason for the sun to go dark, except that God is at work. You see, darkness says something to us, doesn't it? Most of us don't enjoy being in the dark. I know the kids don't like the dark. Many of you probably have night lights or you leave a hall light on or or you you just want to know that you're not by yourself in the dark. Because darkness has a connotation of evil. Bad things happen in the dark, don't they? It has a connotation of sorrow, of loneliness. But actually, in the scriptures, darkness has the connotation of divine judgment. Amos says in his prophecy in Amos 8, that there will come a day, a day of great judgment upon Israel, in which it will be darkness at noon. Zephaniah says in chapter 1, verse 15, that a day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation. And how will we know it? It is a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. You see, what is happening here is judgment is coming from God and nature is responding. And this makes sense with what we know to be true from the Scriptures, don't we? The judgment is being poured out. The wrath of God for all of the sins of the people of Christ. Poured out on Jesus. Jesus is paying the price of sin. 
You see, often when we think about the death of Jesus, we focus in on what we relate to. We focus in on the pain from the beatings, the whippings. We focus in on the spikes and the cross. We focus in on the death and the burial. But we skip over the true suffering that Jesus suffered on our behalf. And that is that he paid to the very last bit the penalty of sin. And he knew what he was doing. You see, oftentimes the condemned were met by women who offered a kind of drugged drink. We see this in one of the other gospel accounts, that Jesus is offered wine mixed with myrrh. And this would be done to put the condemned into a kind of a, a, an unaware state. But not so for Jesus. He refused it and he was keenly aware of all of the punishment that was being poured out on him. You know what that's like. Here we have Jesus, not only is he aware, he has perfect senses because he's the God-man. His thoughts are perfect. His mentality is perfect. His understanding is perfect. Can you understand the suffering that Jesus underwent in this? You see, when we are aware of things that are happening, they're more difficult and painful, aren't they? I have this habit when I go to get my blood drawn at the doctor. They put me in the chair, and I begin to focus intently on what is at the opposite end of the room. I don't even want to see the needle go in my arm. I don't want to know when they're changing tubes. I want to pretend nothing is happening. Because I know if I look at it, it's going to bother me more. It's going to hurt me more. We know this all the time. This is what Jesus is undergoing. He has perfect senses and knowledge, and he is undergoing the penalty of sin for us. Wave after wave of sin being poured out on Jesus. And let's think for a moment then how lightly we treat sin. When was the last time you told a little white lie? When was the last time you excused yourself for treating your spouse badly because... It wasn't a big deal. When was the last time that you excused disobeying your parents because really it wasn't that big of a deal? You see, each and every time we lie, each and every time we take something that doesn't belong to us, each and every time we think in our thoughts wicked thoughts against another, each and every time we say, I want that, I deserve that, we are heaping wrath on the Lord Jesus Christ. He is suffering the penalty of that sin. You see, we think it is no big deal because we have been spared the wrath of God that was poured out on Jesus. But let me tell you one other thing. If the wrath isn't poured out on Jesus, it will be poured out on you. Unless you have come to trust the Lord Jesus Christ by faith, unless you trust him to redeem you because of who he is and what he has done, then all of those little sins that you think aren't that big of a deal are so heavy and black in their weight that they blotted out the sun for hours. The eternal son of God could scarcely bear up under the wrath. He cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? How do you think you could bear up under the wrath of God? 
You can't. You must flee to Jesus. Your sins must be found on that cross. Jesus must have paid for your sins. This is what Isaiah tells us. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. You see, Jesus has an effectual death because he paid the penalty for our sins. Peter puts it this way. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. And I think the best description is from the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians. That he who knew no sin became sin. That we might become the righteousness of God. You see, Jesus paid the price of sin. He bore the wrath of God. But there was more to Jesus' work than merely paying the penalty. It was not just that he paid the penalty. There was a reason why he paid the penalty of sin. Because sin weighs us down. It separates us from God. We are unable to approach a holy and perfect God in our state of sin. And when Jesus died upon the cross, he did not just die to give us a blank slate. So that we could try harder. So that we could have a second chance. No, Jesus died upon the cross not only to pay the penalty of our sins, but to give us access to God. And we see this in another portent. Luke says it almost so quickly you might have missed it. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Now, as Jesus dies, this curtain is split in two. This is the the most magnificent curtain in all of Israel. You need to not think about this as some kind of thin, sheer curtain that is in one of the rooms of your kitchen or your bathroom. This curtain is 30 feet by 30 feet. It is as thick as a man's hand. It is finely woven with red and blue and purple linen from Babylon. And it separates the Holy of Holies in the temple from the other areas. And you remember that the Holy of Holies was the place where God's name dwelt. It was where God was after a fashion. Now we know we can't confine God to a space. But if you wanted to go to God, if you wanted to get access to God, that's where you went. It's where the Ark of the Covenant was kept. It's where the mercy seat, where the blood was sprinkled was kept. And only one person in all of Israel would go into this place and only once a year. On the Day of Atonement, the high priest would go in. That's how special this place was. And Jesus, as he is dying upon the cross, declares... It is finished. And the temple is rent in two. Matthew and Mark to give us a little more detail that it is rent from the top to the bottom. Now don't let anyone come up to you and say, well, it probably just ripped or it was fraying. What? We're talking about a 30-foot curtain. It's more like a carpet than a curtain. It's as thick as a man's hand. 
And if you think the priest didn't see the guy get up on the 30-foot ladder with the broadsword to hack at the top of it so that there'd be a rip and it would rip, you're crazy. This is something that God is doing that there is absolutely no natural explanation for. The gospel authors are very clear. This is a result of what Jesus is doing on the cross. It shows the purpose of the judgment poured out on Jesus. There are now no more sacrifices that are needed. There is now no more work that needs to be done. Next Sunday, you need not bring a lamb or a heifer or doves or anything else to be flayed out in front of us with the blood because we have the blood of Jesus Christ. We have the one eternal permanent sacrifice that will never be superseded. And what Jesus is telling us is through this rending of the curtain is that we now have access to God. We don't have to go through layers. We don't have to do any work. We have direct access to God. This is why the author to the Hebrews is almost giddy when he writes... Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. You see, what Jesus is telling you right now is you have access to God. You don't need to travel to a city in your lifetime. You don't need to pray in a certain direction. You don't need to worship certain animals. You don't need to make certain sacrifices. You have direct access to God because of what Jesus has done. His death is effectual. The third way that we see that Jesus' death is effectual is in the words of Jesus upon the cross. We see in verse 46, Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Jesus here is showing us how we can trust God. Now, Jesus' death here was not an ordinary death by crucifixion. Normally, crucifixion would take a very long time to die from. You may recall that in the Gospel of Mark, Pilate doesn't actually believe Jesus is already dead. He asks the centurion, go make sure he's dead. It hasn't been that long. Normally, what would happen is it would take a very long time and the person who was being crucified would get progressively weaker and weaker, more and more feeble, and to which at one point he would just lapse into unconsciousness. That's how someone who is crucified would die. But Jesus is not just dying on the cross. Jesus is working on the cross, isn't he? You see, he's still in complete control. His work is now done. The curtain has been rent, and he cries out, is it, not, it is now finished. And he prays to his Father. You see, someone who's crucified should not be able to cry out in a loud voice right before they die. But you see, Jesus does that to fulfill his promise. 
You remember what he says? No one takes my life from me. I lay it down. That's what he's doing. This is no ordinary death. Jesus is ready to die because he knows the atonement has been made. It is finished. The work is done. And so he prays to his Father with full confidence in the Father, with an expression of love and relationship. He speaks to the Father. And he's actually quoting a psalm. Psalm 31.5 Into my hands I commit your spirit. And this would be something that the Israelites would know very well from their Bibles. Have you ever, as a child, or maybe some of you young people here do this, have you ever prayed the nighttime prayer? You know what I mean, right? Now I lay me down to sleep. I trust the Lord my soul to keep. This is the Israelites' version of that. They would pray it at night. Psalm 31.5. Except for they didn't dare pray Father. Because they didn't know that closeness of relationship that Jesus had with the Father and that Jesus brings us into relationship with the Father. Jesus adds that element. And He shows us that even at the darkest hour of our lives, we can trust our Father. Jesus has full confidence that death is not the end. It's as if He is on the cross and He can see the empty tomb. Do you have that kind of trust for your heavenly Father? Do you know that death is not the end? Do you know with a certainty that those that you have loved, who have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ and gone to glory, that you will see them again? We need to trust our Father. That's what Jesus is telling us. We need to have full confidence in who He is and what He has done. Jesus gives a loud shout of victory here. He trusts the Lord Jesus. The second thing we see is that Jesus' death was public. It was something that was open. It was not some hidden event that we expect others to believe some kind of story hatched in secret. So, for example, do you know who Buddha was? Can you tell me all about his life, where he lived and what he did? No, you can't. Because, you see, biblical Christianity is the only way of believing, it is the only religion that is grounded in history, in historical fact. That's why Jesus' death was so public. It could not be denied. You see, Luke makes it even clearer. We see the first man to observe this is a centurion. Now he's an objective, he's actually a hostile observer to Jesus. He has no reason to be on Jesus' side. It is very likely that this centurion was in charge of the crucifixion. He might have been the one to whip Jesus. He might have been the one to drive the spikes. He had mocked Jesus. But yet he is observant as he watches the Lord Jesus Christ. He sees the calm of Jesus upon the cross. He hears the prayer of Jesus for forgiveness. He sees the thief on the cross receive the promise of Jesus. 
And because of this, he actually sees what is going on. He looks at Jesus and he says, certainly this man was innocent. Now think about that. Could you imagine that happening in a modern courtroom? Could you imagine in a televised public forum of an execution? And after they flip the switch on the electric chair, the guard says, well, I guess he was really innocent. Can you imagine what it would take to say that? How affected you must be? Because he was a part of what put Jesus to death. There's more than that, though. Because Mark tells us that he said something else. He not only said that Jesus was innocent or just, he said that Jesus was truly the Son of God. Now, we don't have enough information from this little bit to say with any certainty whether the centurion believed savingly on Jesus. But I think we do have enough information to see that Jesus' public death has an effect far beyond Israel. So what we see here is, is that the death of Jesus affects the Gentiles as well as the Jews. And that should be a, ca- a cause for great rejoicing in this room. Because virtually every one of us was born a Gentile. Anyone born out of the Jewish nation is a Gentile. And so we receive the grace of God. The blessings of Jesus and His work come to us. And we have a sign here publicly that it is not just for the Jew, but it is also for the Gentile that Jesus came. And the Gentiles can be changed We have a Gentile centurion praising God at the foot of the cross. Can you imagine anything stranger? There's a second group of people there as well. There are those who are in the crowd, Jesus' countrymen. All the crowds, Luke tells us in verse 48, had assembled for this spectacle. And when they saw what had taken place, they returned home beating their breasts. So this public death of our Lord Jesus Christ, we see it in the crowd as well. Now remember who this crowd is. Hours earlier, they are screaming at the top of their lungs, crucify him. They say, away with Jesus, give us Barabbas. They're the ones who are shouting with blood. They are furious in their desire to see Jesus killed. And they actually come to the crucifixion for the spectacle of it. They want their bloodlust filled. They're not just okay with Jesus dying. They want to see him die. And now, they leave. Beating their breasts, Luke says. What does that mean? I think it's helpful to understand the other place in the Gospel of Luke where this exact same thing is going on. Do you know who else in the Gospel of Luke beats his breast? the tax collector in the temple. And he was beating his breast with a sense of guilt and sorrow before God. That was what you did as an Israelite. You see, they have come to see their own guilt in the death of Jesus. As Jesus' death is public, they cannot escape it. And I think for some of them, salvation started here. Because the only way that we can trust Jesus savingly is first to know that we are guilty. That we have messed up. That we have sinned. That we have no hope. That's the first 
stage. We must know we have a need to come to Jesus to meet that need. And that's, I think, where they're starting. Some of them are probably in the crowd when Peter preaches to them in Acts 2. And he says, this Jesus you crucified and killed. And later on, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. This Jesus whom you crucified. You see... The power of Jesus to save is unstoppable. It reaches to Gentiles. And it reaches to Jews who longed for his death. Who exalted in his pain. Jesus' death is public because we learn from it. The third briefly thing we see about Jesus' death being public is we see a glimpse of his followers here in verse 49. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. This is the other group, his disciples. They've been devastated. They're afraid. They don't even want to get within earshot of the cross. And yet they look out and they see, and the death of Jesus is very real for them. They see it with their own eyes. They see it together so that they can speak about it. And so what this does is, it sets them up for the great truth of the resurrection. No one will be able to say, I don't think he was really dead. And when they see their Lord again, they will know that he has triumphed over death and the grave, and sin. Jesus' death is public so that we can know He won the victory. The third thing we see about Jesus' death and His burial is that it changes everything. We see first that it strengthens His disciples. And in that, I think we should include you and me as well. What happens after Jesus dies? Luke tells us in verse 50, There was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He tells us there's this guy, his name is Joseph. And so you don't confuse him with all the other Josephs in the Bible. Let me tell you where he was from. And he tells us a bit about him. He says he was a member of the council, a good and a righteous man. Matthew tells us that he was also a rich man, which we could infer from the fact that he had a tomb in Jerusalem that was brand new. He's rich. He's also influential. He's a member of the council. That's the Sanhedrin. Those are the people that put Jesus to death. Now we know from the Gospel of Mark that their vote was unanimous. Mark 14, verse 64. So what we probably have happening here is Joseph was absent at the meeting. Maybe he determined to be absent because he didn't like nighttime meetings. Maybe he was away working. Or maybe he was afraid of what he would have to say at a trial of Jesus. Because you see, we also know from the Gospel of John that Joseph was a secret disciple of Jesus. He followed Jesus, but not openly. You can understand why. When his co-workers put Jesus to death. He might think he would be next. And so, but he was a man who was looking for the kingdom of God, longing for God to make himself known. And then something remarkable happens here at the death of Jesus. 
this would appear to be the time of great failure and loss, right? Nobody likes to be on the losing side. Nobody jumps on the bandwagon of the 2-12 and 12 team, right? Even the rats jump off the sinking ship. And yet here, at the worst possible moment, Joseph does the boldest, bravest thing that any disciple could do. He goes of his own accord and he requests a meeting with the governor. And he says, you know that criminal that you killed in the worst way that Romans ever kill anyone? Can I take his body down and honor it? Bury it in my own tomb. Think of the bravery and the boldness that comes to Joseph here because of Jesus' death. Now, he may not have wanted to vote in the Sanhedrin, but now talk about identifying with Jesus. You know, some of us are afraid to carry a Bible around because people might question us. Some of us don't like to bow our heads in prayer at a meal because the waitress might think something about us. Imagine saying to those at the council with you who put Jesus to death, I'm putting Jesus in my grave. There is no stronger way to identify with Jesus. It took great courage for Joseph to do this. He is publicly identifying with Jesus. You see, this is what Jesus does. At great personal cost, he identifies with Jesus. Do you long to be that kind of a disciple? To identify with Jesus even when it costs? Even when it's uncomfortable? The power to do that is not found in getting yourself worked up. It's not found in studying. The power to do that is found in the work of Jesus Christ himself. Jesus gives you the power. The second thing that Jesus changes is he shows us what it means to be truly compassionate and loving. We see this in the women who are around the cross. They too want to honor Jesus. But just imagine this. They can't get his body off the cross. And the clock is ticking. Luke tells us that this is the preparation day for the Sabbath. When the sun goes down, it's Sabbath time and nobody can do any work. If Jesus' body doesn't come off the cross before sundown, it will hang there the whole next day. No one will be permitted to take it down. So they're not sure what to do. But then Joseph comes, and miracle of miracles, he takes Jesus' body down, and they spring immediately into action. They sense the opportunity, because you see, they have seen the love of Jesus for them, and now they want to show love to Jesus. They want to make sure that he's honored in his death, that he's wrapped properly, that the proper ointments and spices are given. We're told in another gospel that 75 pounds... Of spices are used to honor Jesus. That is the amount that you would use for a king's death. But you see, they've been so affected by Jesus that they must love. This is how we must be affected by Jesus. We cannot just observe Jesus on the cross. We cannot just understand the truth of his death. We must be changed by Jesus. We must be better. 
We must be more who God intended us to be because of the work of Jesus in our lives. The last thing that we see that Jesus does in his death is he shows us the truth. Jesus' death reminds us, this sounds so obvious, but that he is a man. We can only really understand Bethlehem in light of Calvary. Because you see, we know he truly became man because he had flesh and he died. It was not some parlor trick. Jesus truly became like us to die a death for his people. For Jesus to die, he had to become truly man. Many out there deny this. But the truth of Jesus' incarnation is found in the cross. As you have conversations with others this coming month, and it focuses upon the birth of Jesus and what that means and who Jesus was and did he really become man, point to Calvary. That assures us that Jesus truly became man. It also assures us that Jesus truly paid the price for our sins. He bore the wrath of God and he died. He paid the wages of sin is what? Death. Adam was warned that if he ate of the fruit, he would surely what? Die. Seeing Jesus die lets you know there is no leftover sin for you to take care of. Jesus has paid the penalty in full. He took our place upon the cross. He satisfied divine justice. The debt is discharged Forever. This is why the prophets always spoke of the death of the Messiah. Jesus' death bids you not to wonder anymore. But to come. Don't wonder whether he was man. Don't wonder whether the debt is paid. Don't wonder who he was. Come. Taste the work of Jesus. Know what it means to be forgiven. Know what it means to have hope and purpose. Because that's what the death of Jesus brings to us. His work is finished. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning for your word and especially for the way in which you encourage us through the description of the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. That we know that our Lord Jesus Christ has indeed paid the debt of sin. Help us to act upon that this week. To honor Him in our hearts and in our lives. To flee from sin. To seek to glorify Him in all that we do. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen.